right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. It's presented by CarParts.com. We thank him for it. I know you're fired up, man. There's a lot of history on today's podcast, and I'm not just talking about our combined age. No, sir. <laughs> no doubt, man. This is going to be a little bit of flashback in time for me. Uh, you know, one of my my colleagues at Ford uh, at the time, he was about 12 levels up in management, way up there at the top. Uh, I like to call him a friend these days, uh, but we got to rub some elbows on some incredible, incredible projects, and I think a lot of you folks are fairly familiar with quite a few of them. Uh, we'll just throw Ford GT out there as one of them. Uh, and then we got a couple of spinoffs. <laughs> no, nobody's familiar with that. What are you talking about? What is that? Yeah, and we got the gentleman solely responsible for stirring things up at Ford and back in the day at Chrysler for you know products like the Prowler, the Viper. Uh, we ah. got Chris Theodore, uh, who's one of the top, you know, executives. Uh, he was at AMC, at Chrysler, I think back to Detroit Diesel way back in the day, and Ford Motor Company. This guy has just left legend yeah. after legend of automotive success. So it's so cool to have him on the show today. Yeah, it's going to be interesting just pick his brain because you look at what he's helped, you know, help dreams come true. He's helped little kids imagine uh, you know, what it would be like to be behind the wheel of a lot of these cars. He's he's provided so many oh wow factors. Some I mean, imagine he's responsible for more jaws dropping um than than probably my wife and and that's saying a lot because she's hot. She's cutie, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's <laughs> saying a lot, man. <laughs> uh but yeah, man, it's it, it's really amazing because uh Man, just to be able to move mountains like that, to be able to have that influence, uh, and and then when you're said, when it's all said and done, you can sit back and go, look, I I helped create that and and bring it to life, and that's man, that's saying a lot when you think about all the things that are that are you know has his signature on it. Well, there's so many challenges, uh, you know, technically when you're just designing some of these vehicles, right, to get through the the design and technical challenges of how to 
you know, form and shape and create and make. Uh, but when you're working with OEs, you know, there's so many layers thick all the way to the top. You know, there's got to be politics. There's got to be business cases and things that you got to maneuver, uh, you know, union labor issues and plants and logistics and just everything has to come together, right? The no people, no, everybody's, you know, always against an idea at first. It's the convincing that you got to do to to get the, an idea to go from an idea, right? I always say the dream is free, but the hustle so separately to get something uh, to actually go from a concept and a dream actually to on paper in the tooling and then, you know, to create it. Man, that is there's so many no's and most people, you know, most people stop. After the first no, most people, you know, will get to the second no or the third no and just be like, well, I give up, you know, I rest my case. There's there's no doubt in my mind he went against he went against tidal wave tsunamis of no's and people saying, "Ah, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not sure that's where we want to go as a company. I'm not sure if that's something we want to push forward to, you know, all that. I'm sure he's heard it all. Well, and these aren't just little no's like no's from you or no's from me. These are no's from the top guys in the industry, right? On every level, you know, the bosses and the bosses, bosses and whatever. But, you know, thankfully he made his way up high enough to carry enough clout uh, and, you know, has enough personal swagger to plow through those nose and give us some of the biggest successes that we know of in our lifetime. Uh, and, and we can see on the road today. Uh, and what's really cool yeah. is, you know, how the story just weaves personally for me. Uh, I'll give you that quick background and we'll bring them in right after the break. But uh, I got to Ford in 2000. Uh, you know, I grew up a Chevy kid. I worked on everything, uh, but kind of a little bit new to a lot of the, let's say, the more modern Ford engines at the time. And I kind of looked around and said, well, we got the Mustang. That's great. Uh, but why don't we have a Corvette and why don't we have a Viper? Uh, and just being an engine guy, powertrain guy, an advanced powertrain, you know, a lot of guys said, well, you know, the engine is just such a, a vital part of a supercar, you know, one of these higher end vehicles. And it's so difficult financially to justify. Uh, so I kind of looked around at what we made, how we made it, uh, what the plants could produce and, um, you know, kind of reconfigured what we know today is the Coyote motor, right? The V8. Uh, at the time, we were making, you know, 4.6 version, so the 4.6 liter, but we made a tall deck version of, you know, the 5.4, but the long stroke meant couldn't really spin the thing up, couldn't get the RPM. Uh, and then we made a V10 version of that, you know, long stroke. So I said, man, what if we reconfigured this, got the displacement we need? You know, we can get out to five, eight liters by stretching. We could bore it out, stroke it out, get to 6.4 liters, right? We got the four valve head, you know, from our Cobra R slash what ended up being in the GT, the Ford GT. So we could stretch the block. We could stretch the heads. We got all the engineering, all the power cylinder stuff's the same. We stretched the intake. We stretched the cams. Uh, So it was just a really smart, economical way to get ourselves into a, you know, a 40 valve all aluminum, you know, high revving, naturally aspirated powertrain that I was hoping would inspire the company to build a car. Well, long story short, I didn't realize 14 levels up and the high rise of world headquarters or wherever he was sitting, Chris Theodore was already on the other end putting the vehicle together. And that put us on a crash course of trying to marry maybe a potentially kick ass engine concept uh, and some prototypes that we were working on with this amazing vision uh, for not one, but several kick-ass vehicles, the Ford GT being one, 
a Carroll Shelby Cobra and what ended up being a GR1 concept that looks badass and very much like a Daytona Coupe. Um, but yeah, why don't we get some of the details from his side of the world uh, and how we ended up crossing paths. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, man. I bet this guy was accused of drinking on the job so often. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He's Kevin Bird, I'm Willie B. We're back in just a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. It's presented by CarParts.com. Brakes for every single car out there, man. If you know the year, make a model, you can get these things dropped right to your garage door, back door, wherever you need it, man. Mobile experience, easy to navigate. Check it out, CarParts.com. So, Bird, I know you're fired up, man. Having Chris Theodore on is, uh, well, it's a treat, man. So I'll let you do the introduction. Go ahead. All right, Chris, man, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is great. I think the last time I caught you might have been at uh, Concourse Elegance, maybe. I think you had the, the actual Cobra at that time, kind of showing it off after maybe a recent purchase. And Yeah, we took a picture. Yeah, elbow grease and spit and polish on it. It was looking good. That was. That was. Let's go back in time a little bit, because um, you know I mentioned you were a big influence, I believe, on the Prowler and the uh, the Viper. So that probably started a lot of your uh, prowess and experience uh, to what you know. Once you jumped over, you know, the other side of the street to Ford, really kind of kicking off some of those things. So, what kind of um, influence and and whatnot did you have in the Viper? Well. Uh... Viper had a lot of influence on me as well. I was, uh, back in the day, I was in charge of Jeep truck powertrain. And uh, Lutz's idea was we should do a V10 for the truck. And so I started doing the V10 truck engine. And one day I got a phone call from Francois Castang, who's head of engineering at Chrysler. He said, uh, I want you to meet Carol Shelby, my boyhood hero. Uh, show, him, show him the drawings of the V10. So I, I collected everything up. I ran up down to the meeting. Wait, wait. Hold on, Chris. I got to ask you. When he said, I want you to meet Carol Shelby, did, were, were you, did your jaw drop? Were you like, g -g 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 what? I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, yeah. I couldn't wait. I raced down to the conference room. <laughs> Carol. And he says, yeah, Bob Lutz and Francois and I were talking about doing a new sport car, not sports car. And uh, Francois said, uh, you had an engine you're working on might be interesting. And so I roll out the drawings of the V10 truck engine we're doing. And I said, I don't think this is quite right for the sports car, for a sports car, but we can do an aluminum block version of it. And I think you'd be able to get, you know, 400 horsepower and 400 foot pound of torque. And, uh, we do all right with it. And so I got to meet him and uh, literally that's where the program was already going. The sketches for the Viper were underway, uh, the clay. And I started providing to the concept car guys parts uh, for the V10 show car. And I never saw anything about it until 
the day they introduced the car, the day before they introduced the car at the Chrysler Center, the auto shelf. And when I saw the car, I said, we got to do this thing. And uh, the good and the bad of it was, the good was, you know, I was involved. Uh, the team uh, got put together from volunteers throughout the company uh, that wanted to work on Viper. And they had to say, okay, you, you get to work on Viper if we choose you, but there's no guarantee there's a job for you after you get done. They still volunteer. Great team of guys. <laughs> My job was to provide the resources. So I provided the famous cell 13 Hemi dyno room, the technicians that operated it. Uh, great, a couple of great engine engineers, uh, one Dick Winkles and the other one I can't remember. And they started on the V10. Well, the funny thing is Chrysler owned Lamborghini at the time and the famous, famous Mauro Fagari uh, of Ferrari fame, who did all the 60s Ferraris, had moved over to Lamborghini and was in charge of research. So to give him uh, a shot at putting some uh, F1 technology into the V10, Mauro ended up with a program with Winkles uh, working for him. And uh, they did the aluminum block V10. I was on the advisory committee, you know, as the V10 uh, and the Viper were developed. But, you know, I basically in the beginning, I just provided resources. Later on, the team ended up reporting to me. And, uh, you know, we went to Le Mans. We won three years in a row. Uh, there's, there's lots of lots of great stories on the Viper. But uh, it was just a fabulous, fabulous experience. That was that was some exciting times because, you know, the Viper just comes at you like a giant fist. You know, it, it's a different <laughs> yeah. type of, you know, sports car, supercar. Uh, but it, it, you know, it's got its own space in there. But but there's still so much respect as, as clumsy as it is sometimes, as uh, unrefined as it is sometimes. Uh, there's just they're wild. They captured my imagination. I'm sure so many others with just the big tires, you know, the big shoes on it. Like I said, the big punch uh, underneath the hood, uh, and and you turned what was technically a big heavy truck engine into, you know, uh, Le Mans winning powertrain three years in a row. That's insane. You know, the Viper and, and the Ford GT, which we'll talk about later, but they're like complete opposites. The Viper is rude and crude, and you get in that car, and you know, it kind of, you know, you got to be a man's man to handle that car. You got to work it, yeah. I hate, I hate to see it that way. I'm not being sexist, but you got to work that car and it's rough and tumble and it's kind of car you think you're doing hundred miles an hour and you look down, you're doing 70 because it's just, you know, it's a holy terror. Ford GT is just the opposite, but I, I love my Viper. And I love my Ford GT better, but that's another story. <laughs> well, they're, they're different flavors, right? You know, we all have our, you know, our significant other, but we all have maybe some girl in the past or some you know other that you know flying out there somewhere they're just there's the redheads and the brunettes and there's the vipers <laughs> and there's the corvettes and there's the gts right you know like um but they're all great uh, as far as flavor wise so you know at some point you jump ship and you went over to ford and you carried with it at least some kind of ideas now were you oh hold on hold the, on we can't let him go i got one question because you're hopping all the way to ford way too uh, soon I, see we got I, our mopar I, guy I, in yeah, the house I, I he, got, he, he's gonna want to circle this wagon a few times so we'll, we'll give him a we'll give him a trip around yeah the block. man hold up look i understand the viper comments and you know it's like a you know people of walmart uh showing up to your your business meeting um but you know with a kick-ass attitude i want to i want to know about the prowler because 
I thought that car had so much potential, but it was so underpowered. Um, it, you know, it's like, man, if that thing only would have came with a, I don't know, with a bigger engine offering, um, what was the thing that held that back? Uh, the the short answer is the transmission. Uh, the prowler was uh, the design guys came up with the idea. They knew that Tom Gale had a design of Chrysler was a hot rod fanatic. So uh, they teased him with a great uh, rendering of, of the prowler. And we did the show car. And I talked to my boss. I was in charge of uh, Chrysler minivans at the time. And I said, we need to do this car. Let's uh, I'll, I'll create a team within a team. The reports to me on the prowler and we, i picked the best of the best to do the prowler but basically it was an experiment in new materials so and it, the interesting part of the story and then i'll say the sad part of the, story. the interesting part of the story is uh that if we hadn't done the prowler a lot of things that happened on the 4gt wouldn't have happened later well i'm glad you worked those bugs out of chrysler and then came over to ford with you know, all the answers so that's a great one, man. Yeah, most, <laughs> most of them. There's most of them. I did miss one, but I won't tell you that one right now. But the frame was all aluminum, um, made by Alcoa. The body was stamped aluminum. It was a real challenge. That's, that shape of car wasn't made to meet safety standards. Uh, the power was designed to be light. So hopefully there was enough power. The, the good engine, the aluminum block engine, didn't come out until 99, unfortunately. And uh, we, we really didn't have a lightweight V8 to throw in it. The 318 Magnum would have been fine, but didn't want the car to be nose heavy. And the transmission reportedly couldn't take it. Now, I still meet with the Prowler Club every now and again, and there's a bunch of guys that have managed to keep that transmission there, back there and stuff a Hemi up front, and they haven't broken the transmissions yet. So. Maybe the uh, we in the engineering community were a little too conservative on the on the torque capabilities of that transmission. So yes, I wish it, I think it would have been a greater success if we got more power to it. But we learned so much about aluminum uh, that it was really important vehicle uh, in moving the technology forward. Interesting. All right, all right. So you step over the Ford, and I guess uh, it was green lights everywhere. You got to. Uh, to move forward with, uh, well, you tell us how how did it go from the the knowledge that you learned off the Prowler? How did you apply that into the, the Ford GT and sort of how did that s process begin? Well, it wasn't as easy as you uh, make it out to be. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, first of all, we tried for the second generation. There was a group of us, including my boss. That we said, you know, the Cobra, the uh, the Viper is really a ripoff of the Cobra. Why don't we rip off Ford's heritage again and do a mid-engine Viper? And unfortunately, we couldn't get that idea across. So I was, when I jumped over to Ford, I think I was one week on the job. I was flying uh, to Sweden to uh, be part of the closing on the purchase of Volvo. And uh, I said, you know, we got to do a Ford GT. Not people have wanted to do, you know, Ford GTs, mid-engine Fords for you. There were tons of programs. But the guys were, bosses were drinking on the plane and they got all excited. And uh, by the time we got to Sweden, they all agreed, yeah, we got to start a Skunk Works program to work on the GT. So I'm one week on the job, I get back, oh boy. And then I find out my boss gave the job 
to what is what became my dear friend Neil Ressler, who was head of research. They set up a skunk works in the basement. Unfortunately, it languished there for about three years. Uh, yeah, it was it was three years. And if without a set of circumstances, if uh, Jack Nasser hadn't been fired and Bill Ford hadn't taken over, and Jay Mays and I, I was always sketching the car they were doing in the basement didn't look right. And I, I'm a frustrated designer. I sit in meetings and I sketch. One day my boss caught me sketching a GT40 in front of a cast of the entire management team. And he went over to me. I'm supposed to be listening to his speech. And he picks up my drawing and he takes it over to Jay Mays, the head of design. And he says, we got to get serious about this. And, and basically that's when we decided to embrace the heritage of the GT40. And Jay Mays and I said, we still couldn't get it approved. Let's, let's just show it at the Detroit Auto Show. And if we build it, they will come. That still didn't quite do it until uh, Bill Ford took over. The centennial was coming. And uh, I got called up to the head office. And they said, we got to do something to show that Bill Ford's in charge. What do you recommend? We've done a 49 show car and a 4 GT show car. The boss was kind of favoring what he called the 49er. He was an Englishman. And Jay Mays and I and Jay did a masterful job of convincing him. He had, he had the model painted in the golf colors. We took him down the elevator. The headlights are staring at him. He nearly fell to his knees because he was a Brit, saw the car race at Le Mans. And that's how we got the program approved on a one-page sheet of paper. Never been done before. So uh, it was... Uh, but there was a caveat. We had to get the car done in like 15 months, three running prototypes, production ready for the Ford Centennial in 2003. So we put together a team and brought Carol on board as one of the, because Preston believed we were going to build a car. So we created a dream team, brought Carol Shelby on board. We had uh, the dream team included uh, Jack Roush and key suppliers. And we kicked off the project and away we went. Now, I got to tell one story because Kevin and I will have two different versions of this, I think, because we've never talked about it. When I first got there, I called together. There were four different engine groups at Ford Motor Company. I think Kevin can attest to this. There was a research engine group that Kevin was a part of. There was the powertrain engine group. There was the SVT engine group. And there was another engine group, I can't remember. And everybody wanted to do something different. I wanted to do a V10 because I knew a horsepower race was coming. Um, some guys wanted to do a copycat, high revving Ferrari style, low, low displacement Ferrari style motor. I said, that's not suitable for a 4GT. We won Le Mans with a 427. <laughs> yeah, you know, <and> America. <laughs> uh, yeah. The SP guys you know, wanted to use the uh, the five the the uh, lightning motor as a base until we could get a, a dry sump aluminum block version done. And um, I wanted the V10, and a Jim Clark was in the meeting. Just so you know, Kevin. Oh yeah, and uh, that was my old boss in in research powertrain research. Right, and uh, basically everybody went away. Nobody could agree, and. Finally, because of timing, we had to work so fast. 
to get the mule cars done, uh, I was finally convinced, okay, we got to go with the supercharged 5.4 so that we could use the, the uh, lightning motors in the 5.4. Meanwhile, Kevin and Greg Coleman went off. I don't know if they just went off on their own or if Jim Clark whispered in his ear. Magically, we're about halfway through the program. Prototypes are being built. And I don't know if it was you, Kevin, or Greg that gave me a call and said, I want to drive a hot Mustang. I said, sure, went over. <laughs> and here's this uh, Fox body Mustang, you know, with a V10 that goes like a scalded cat. And uh, I said, wow. I said, can you make me some more of these? The guy said, yeah, just write me a check. It was a big check. I got to tell you, sweet. So Kevin and, and Greg and how many others uh, started building different displacements, three more V10s. And somebody tried to sneak one into the V10 prototypes. And then I heard later, and I won't say names, but somebody was told, you put that engine in that car under penalty of death, you won't have a job. So it never got into the V10. I didn't know about it until I actually drove the Mustang. So anyway, we proceeded with the four GT with the supercharged V8. Uh, Kurt Hill was a great engineer that uh, did a masterful job. That engine's bulletproof. It's the only engine program I've ever been on. It only had one engine failure, and that failure was the oil pump drive on the crankshaft that we didn't need because we were drive some. And uh, it, it it was a wonderful engine. worked out right, but I still would have rather had the V10. Well, <laughs> All right. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we pause for a minute? We'll take a quick break. And uh, we're going to sure. dive more into the <laughs> details here of, uh, you know, how we cross paths and what happened after that uh, final decision to do the uh, the V8 supercharged instead of the V10. Uh, there's probably several factors in there, some technical, some political. Uh, but then there was some follow on that was pretty darn cool as well. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. It's Willie B, Kevin Burr with the Two Guys Garage podcast. Catch you back here in just a second. It is the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. It's presented by CarParts.com. We thank him for it. Check out the mobile experience waiting on you right now. My man, Kevin, you got to be fired up because there's a little bit of history from you in this, too. I, I've I've heard you tell that story, you know, once or twice before. I was always, uh, it always amazes me uh, just the level of, well, Let's sneak away and get this crazy V10 engine built and stuff it in a Fox body Mustang just to just say and prove that we could do it. There was, there was a lot of that in you um, and your uh, cohorts uh, at that time, man. Did you have any idea that it was being considered for the, you know, for the GT? Well, I kind of mentioned in the beginning, um, you know, this was just solely independent without knowing anything that, you know, Chris and the team were working on from the vehicle side was just trying to demonstrate a powertrain that we could make that didn't cost a you know billion two billion dollars of investment to to get you know the first ones rolling uh, that we could do a Viper we could do a Corvette or something in that space uh, so you know we did it all under nickels and dimes right so um, I went to the casting plant where we make the cylinder blocks right across the river there in Windsor. Uh, we got a little prototype shop and uh you know with the help of some of the great casting guys over there we took all the sand cores that you would put together there's like 19 or 21 different cores the water jackets the side cores the top the valley and we cut and glued them from a v8 to make v10s 
put the sand package together and poured good clean castings out of them. We did the same thing with the four valve heads that ended up being on the GT and they were the Cobra R four valve heads and stretched them. Everything else we could make billet like cranks and, and cams. So in $4, this is pennies. So I, I, I pitched this idea. I, I put the whole thing together on how we would produce it, what we would cut and weld, what we would billet. And uh, my boss just kind of said, all right, here's a little bit of, you know, nickels and dimes. And we went and made, you know, a couple castings enough to make a few engines. Uh, and so then the next phase was, all right, we got the engine, uh, you know, without a lot of resources, because this isn't a, necessarily an approved program, it's just sort of an investigation. Uh, we got the Cobra R mule vehicle. So it's the actual vehicle, this Fox body Mustang that Chris mentioned, that we did all the 5.4 uh, V8 uh, development for so we developed the engine in my shop for svt for the cobra r so we got that vehicle back from just sitting there collecting dust we pulled the cobra r engine out we put the v10 in we went down to livernoy motorsports which you know willie yeah. and we did like an on the fly in the vehicle calibration we ended up uh you know to make things cheap and effective we ran it like two i5s uh because our current PCM could control the V10 uh, with a split pin crank. So the pins on the crank are split like a V6. Uh, we went with a common pin crank and the computer couldn't run that kind of V8 or V10. So we used two PCMs to run two I5s and they had no idea that there was another I5 connected to it. Uh, so we just doubled up all the crank sensors and cam sensors. So it was a brilliant way to build these engines with like zero dollars so it just happened all almost under the radar nobody really knew about it because it didn't cost anything there wasn't a program directive and then all of a sudden when the uh, concept car for the ford gt was announced that was the first time i heard about it we're like flipping our lid jumping up and down like oh my god they got a car we got an engine <laughs> yeah. so i started calling my friends at, at svt and said hey man meet us at the track so you know we started with the low league you know engineer guys you know on my level i'm like all right drive the car what do you think and they're like dude i gotta get my boss in here and so it went right up the chain everyone drove this uh mule vehicle with a v10 in it all the way up to bill ford jr uh and i think it skipped uh who was at a time running svt that was uh, john coletti so everybody up to Coletti, but Coletti was like running SVT. He already had his V8 supercharged plan. He's like, nope. So then it went around him and all the way up to Bill Ford. <laughs> so that's how we got the news out. And of course, everybody on the SVT uh, team was like, dude, that's the engine. That's the engine. But we had one guy at least, and Chris might know more, uh, trying to kibosh it because he already had his plan. So now we have in the background... You know, two competing powertrains with a very short timing window uh, to get them in and get it developed and on the showroom. So, Chris, I'm going to let you take over and uh, maybe walk through some of the things that uh, permeated in the background there. And um, and then what you kind of did to uh, keep the thing alive for a couple more years. Well, you know, I'm not one. I'm not going to name names and the politics is always hard to 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 figure out. But. Uh, Kind of the 5-4 was, I was convinced because of the mule cars was kind of a sure thing timing wise because we didn't have uh, any time to spare. I mean, this was record time to do a car. Absolutely. The yeah. These are, these are go fast moments here, right? So there was uncertainty whether, you know, you'd be able to get engines there for prototypes and so on. Now, 
the nickels and dime. Uh, maybe it was, but when I asked after I drove the car, I asked for more engines. And I think you guys charged me a quarter million dollars for the other three engines. (laughs) 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 Those are big nickels and big dimes. (laughs) Quarters. Some might call them quarters. Well, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a a slight difference between a a dirty prototype that that runs and does a thing. And then there's the concept car where you're showing off to the International Auto Show and you've got like, you know, billet this and polish that and so yeah there, there was there was a little bit more involved with those i just sure. i don't want them to think that you know this was it yes it was done on the cheap by industry standards up to the point I, where we got you involved we did it on the cheap and then <laughs> yeah. then we knew you had a paycheck or a, a checkbook there that uh, could help us out so uh, yeah the first so the next one went into the 427 show car which a big ford sedan it was pretty cool but we lied it wasn't 427 displacement. I think that one was what, 6.8 or 6.4 liters? Yeah, I think 6.4 liters was about as big as we could and then, technically uh, get us and be durable. You know, and then, uh, well, we did the Ford GT program. I should finish that real quick. Uh, like I mentioned, you know, uh, first of all, I told the guys to get rid of the high winding engine, all that. I said, you got to have 500 horsepower and 500 foot pound of torque, or don't talk to me. So I knew what was coming with Viper. And then what I'd learned on the aluminum frame, uh, we got the research boys in from the other side of the house. Uh, we threw out Alcoa. They did aluminum frame. We did uh, super form, plastic formed aluminum body, keep the weight down. And uh, I'm really, 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 really proud of the way that car came out. So what's next after the 4GT? Well, obviously, when we get together, I said, we got to do, I want to do a trilogy in cars. And the next one should be a Cobra. And the one after that should be a modern day Daytona. So uh, after uh, we, had, in 2002, we did the Ford GT show car. It was called a GT40 back then. 2003, we did the 49. Yeah, 2004. Uh, no, 2000. Yeah, 2004 Detroit Auto Show, we targeted uh, doing Modern Day Cobra with Carol. Because Carol and I had become really, really, really close friends from from the Viper days. And uh, that was the spot to get get the V10. And then I got with Carol and the design guys. And I said, hey, let's steal all the parts off the Ford GT. We put the Ford GT transaxle in the back. So we did a modern Cobra that uh, was called Project Daisy, had the, the 6.2 liter uh, version of the V10, and it was 605 horsepower that Kevin and Greg and the rest of the gang did to, had done in secret. Uh, built an all aluminum chassis out of four GT parts and a lot of bespoke parts. Kevin was one of the stars. The whole the whole sh- the whole build was documented on a. TV show called Rides. Kevin was one of the stars of the show along with Greg. And put that car together in, I think it was a little over eight months from sketch to Carol driving it at the Irwindale track and then uh, introducing it at the 2004 Detroit Auto Show. A monster car. uh, The engine was fantastic. It uh, 
we didn't get it approved for production. And that was the sad part of it because uh, I really loved that car. Carol loved the car. Russ loved the car. But the economy was starting to get a little bit soft and I couldn't get the program approved. So that's the Cobra story. Unless you got any questions on that one. I- <laughs> well, I, I do. So that the, the one that you produced, you know, you, you obviously felt uh, real personal about that car. Um, at what point w- were you like, that? that's my girl. That's uh, I'm going to own that or I'm keeping that. Or, it, um, it didn't work out quite that way. But let me finish one more thing because there's a fourth engine. So the following year, so we got to do a, the Daytona modern Daytona and a young designer by the name of George Saradakis came up with one sketch. He had seen the chassis that we did and we had a spare chassis from the Cobra because we built the chassis of the Cobra in Dearborn and the body was built in Valencia, California. So we sent them a spare chassis ahead of time. It wasn't finished. Well, then we took the spare chassis, finished that out and did a coupe that was called the GR1 and did the whole thing in polished aluminum. And it's probably the most beautiful Oh, it's most beautiful car we ever worked on. I mean, it was just lush. Yeah. So there it goes. That's the fourth of the four V10s in the world. And unfortunately, all the tooling that Kevin and the guys did got scrapped. I, I, was, I was trying to go find it with Greg, and it's gone. So now uh, I retire from Ford. I love Carol. Carol and I worked on a bunch of other projects. We were going to do a Shelby version of the Ford GT together. Uh, Everybody at Ford except one person disagreed, and it didn't happen. Um, But Carol and I were still working on other projects. And uh, I was developing, we were developing another car called Super Snake 2, which I can, if we don't run out of time, I'll talk about later. But... uh, I'm doing my thing. I'm retired. I'm doing my consulting gig, working on other cars and other projects. One day I read on the web that the Shelby Cobra concept, which was codenamed Daisy, is going to be put up for auction, at a charity auction. I said, this is impossible. And can't be. And I read a little further on, and it says, the money from the auction will be used for the restoration of the Henry and Clara Ford Mansion in Dearborn, Michigan. I said, okay, that makes a little sense. And then it says a little bit further below, and for uh, liability purposes, the vehicle has been disabled. So now my antenna go up, and I said, God, maybe I can have my, my dream car that I did and pick it up on the cheap. So I conned my wife. I said, let's go to it. So it was in a fairly obscure auction house in Greensboro, North Carolina, called GAA. I said, let's go visit your sister and we'll stop. I just want to see what the car goes for. And I didn't tell her that I was registered to bid, but I tried. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way this man works. (laughs) (laughs) So we get to the auction and I try to be inconspicuous and the car comes up for auction and I'd set a limit for myself. And that, that lasted in about 50 seconds into the auction blew right past me. I had a spotter with me and said, I might be interested in this car. And as soon as it blew past my limit, I walked away and it kept going up and up and up. 
And the spotter followed me back to where I was sitting with my wife. And finally, she says, you're only going to get one chance to own this car. Oh, my God. I, I love your <laughs> wife, and I don't think I've met her yet. What a woman. <laughs> yes, oh, my goodness. One last time. I wow. I had to mortgage both houses to buy that car. And uh, then I had to take it back to Detroit. And fortunately, uh, I had some inside track news on how they disabled it. We got it or running again. And I, like you said, I took the car to uh, a couple of Concorde d'Elegance. And even later on, I got the car titled and licensed for the road. But it's 101. It's the last Shelby Cobra. And, you know, I was scared to drive. I couldn't drive it on the road. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of priceless. So I enjoyed it. I'd have it out on the track, if you know what the M1 con is. Wow, it's the last Shelby Cobra. You guys, yeah. I mean, just think about that in itself. It's, it, that's just, it's kind of stunning to hear the last Shelby Cobra. It's amazing. You know, th this is so good. I'm going to propose that we go into a third segment. So why don't we take a quick break? Uh, and then we'll bring Chris back on. Because we gotta, we got to understand, Chris, how much did you leverage for this thing don't tell us right now and then there's a flip side to this because you you polished up this guy you got it running again uh you had some fun with it you showed it off but then you put it back on the auction and there was a slightly bigger number on the resale of this thing so just nickels and dimes just nickels and dimes. yeah Nick, that's what i say man willie take us out real quick and uh, we'll come back and get the final scoop <laughs> on the saga here of this uh this daisy or cobra project yeah that's great all right it's the two guys garage podcast give us one minute we're back kevin bird and willie b It is the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. It's presented by CarParts.com. Very few stories, very few podcasts reach a third leg. But I'm telling you, this one, this is a happy ending, I hope. Let's, uh, let's talk to Chris Theodore. So when we last talked to you, you told us that you had just purchased, and you mortgaged both houses, to purchase yep. the last Carroll Shelby Cobra. That in itself had to be a moment for you because when that when it dropped and said sold and your name was there, what was that feeling? What was that feeling like? You have to see the video. That guy was holding the hammer up and I'm saying, put that hammer down. And right. <laughs> the bidder there on the phone saying, wait, 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 wait. Put the hammer down. <laughs> right. <laughs> My heart was racing. I'm jumping up and down. It took me a half an hour to get my heart rate back to normal. It was, it was the craziest thing I'd ever done. Do they have de defibrillators on staff? Do they have defibrillators right there for those moments? <laughs> I need, you know, because I could imagine, you know, when you drop. Tell us, tell us a number. What did the thing end up selling for? Eight hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Eight hundred twenty-five grand. And it didn't run. And it doesn't even. Run! What kind of wife is this? Ooh. My God, eight twenty-five. All, right. <laughs> All right. So half an hour later, your heart beats back down to some kind of humanistic uh, beat. There, uh, wh where are you at? Where's your head in all of this? Did you take possession of it that day? Did you Did you put it in the trailer that day? No. It, it's funny. <laughs> we had to go on to visit my my wife's sister, so uh, we. I did. I could barely. I was shaking, arranging to have the car shipped back to Detroit, 
And it took me, I didn't sleep for a couple of days, you know, and I called everybody I knew. And a lot of people were really excited for me. A lot of people thought I was crazy as a loon. Um, but we got the car back to the joint. I took it to the same shop where we actually built the car. And so, and, and Greg Coleman came over, you know, with, with Kevin built the engine. And uh, a friend of mine told me where the car had been disabled. So we got her back running and I spent some money and, you know, to do that obviously and some time and we polished her up, like you said, and then we took it to Amelia Island concourse and St. John's concourse. How was it received when people saw it? How was it received by the, by the public? Oh, it was wild because some people, you know, this is now the car is now 13 years old. And so some people go, Oh, I remember the show rides. I love that car. I had a die cast model of the car. And other people would walk up and say, wow, is that car coming out next year? It's still fresh. And they were just blown away. People love it. I think they like it even better now because it aged. It was kind of avant-garde uh, for the time because it, at the time they didn't want to make it retro. And so they were trying a new design form. And it's, people loved it at, at the car shows. And then uh, perhaps a year later, I get a call from Jay Leno's garage. Is the car going to be in California? And I said, no. I said, well, uh, if you fly out, we'll ship the car out. And Jay wants to drive it. And uh, they did a segment on Jay Leno's garage. That was a blast driving the car around. Now, he was driving it on the street. Of course, he, he did. It was nice enough to put a rider on the insurance policy. So we had, <laughs> so we had, some, we had some fun driving around Burbank uh in daisy so that was a wild event and he had donald osborne appraised the car and donald says you know here's the car what it's worth he says but you know if this car were titled and licensed for the road it could be up to twice as much in value so then i spent the next year figuring out how to get you know this car licensed and titled for the road which i did and i'm still scared to drive it never took it on the road so well, Chris, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't blame you for that. You know, if I mortgage two houses and I'm in 825 grand plus, however much it took to get the powertrain running again, how to get it spiffed and polished, right? We're talking, you know, upwards to a million bucks. I don't think I need to drive that, you know, at least not under my own insurance policy and, and everything else. So I, I don't blame you one bit. Yeah, just the insurance, just the insurance is a is a significant amount every year, you know, and the insurance was not to drive the car. The insurance was just to store it in the damn garage. And it, it was in the, I was, I think it was over $10,000 a year. So, um, and I, I wrote a book about it and Jay driven it. People had seen it. So finally, and I have some other projects to finish, including that other car I mentioned earlier, Super Snake 2, that I'd started with Carolyn. When I mortgaged the house, there was no more working on Super Snake 2. So that project got put aside. And so finally, decided it was time to put the car up for auction. And we took it to Monterey at the Mecham auction uh, last summer, the day before my birthday. And that was heart attack number two. So, <laughs> so it's it, it's a real happy happy ending because you know it's happy 
there's, you know, it's fairy tale for me to own one of our concept cars that we never sell. And the concept car that my team designed uh, was fabulous. And then we did put it up for auction and it's a unicorn. It's one of one. It's the only, it's the last Shelby car. It's the only one in the world. There's no way to really place a value on it. Yeah. So tell me what you're thinking. Cause you know what you got in it and you know, at auctions, you need, you need those two guys or those two people that are going to bid the thing up. So going into this auction, right, knowing what you got in it, where was your head? What were you thinking? What were you feeling about well, this? Were you confident? Were you like, yes, I'm going to make out. Or I'm going to break even. I'm going to lose my ass. Where, where were you? Uh, all over the map. In fact, the night before, we, we did, I did talk to Frank Meekham and Meekham. They were wonderful people to work with. And we promoted the car heavily. And we agreed on a reserve of $1.5 million. And uh, the night before, my wife, my cousin from Illinois, we went down there. And the night before, my wife has a meltdown. And she goes, what if it doesn't make reserve? What are you going to do? I said, it's time to sell a car. I can't enjoy it anymore because I'm afraid to drive it. I take it out on the track and I drive up like a little old lady. I can't take it out on the road. And I can't, <laughs> I can't show it the way I want to show it. I take it to cars and coffee at the track, but I, I, you know, couldn't take it down the dream cruise for Christ's sake. So, uh, but she made me nervous after she went through that. So we get to the auction the next morning and I know there's one bidder that I recognized and, and people came to find out more about the car under the tent. One of my friends came up and wished me good luck. And in the tent are all the high dollar cars. Lusso Ferraris, 427 Shelby, GT350s, Lamborghinis, uh, Ferrari F1s. One by one, they roll out of the tent. I was to drive Daisy, the Cobra concept out. I'm so damn nervous. I got to drive it around through the crowd to bring it around into the other tent. And I'm, I'm paranoid I'm going to forget which switch to turn on to raise the power hood and everything else. And don't install a car. <laughs> Which drives Leg shaking every time you push the clutch. So I pull up on the stage and I get out of the car and I'd already gotten the, the driver that's going to take it off, told him how to lower the hood and get all that off. And, and I get out, they do a beautiful announcement that I couldn't hear. I mean, and my cousin brings my wife up on stage with me. We have to stand next to Frank, make him because what he does when the car, if he, that car doesn't go, if it gets near reserve, uh, he starts to say, Hey, do you want to lift the reserve? That's his, what he does. And, uh, so my wife comes up, bidding starts and it's, it starts, it's, they tried to open it at a million, didn't go. So they opened it at five and it went six, seven, eight, started to climb pretty fast. It gets up to a million four and I'm starting to get excited. And Frank comes over to want to lift the reserve. <laughs> And as I'm about to say no, it goes one five, one six, one seven before he raises his hand to indicate, you know, yell out the reserve is up. Now the crowd's cheering. The whole day, this crowd, the first time they got up, they're standing up, they're yelling, they're cheering. And goes one seven, and it goes one eight, one nine. It went, it went all the way up to. <laughs> 2.4 and that's without the buyer's commission 2.4 
million smackaroos. Now, I, if, you, if you watch the video, you can see it on Mika, the Mika Monterey show. My wife is like, what's going on? She's catatonic. I am pumping my fist, cheering on the crowd, right? you know. And we follow the car out off the stage. And people are lined up, giving us the high fives. My heart's, again, I'm on verge of a heart attack. Now I get to the happiest part of the ending. I walk out of the tent following the car. I got to stop for about 15 minutes, get my heart rate down. I walk back to the tent where the car started out. And as I walk in, I said, who bought the car? And my friend who had stopped by to say hello that morning was sitting in the driver's seat, turned around with a big grin. He's the guy that bought it. Never told me he was interested. We start jumping up and down, hugging each other. And it's great because I can't think of a better owner. I'm not going to say his name right now because he wants to do a big announcement. But the car's out in California. It's going to be in. He's building a special display for the car with all the other cars in his collection that's open to the public. He's going to drive it. He's going to show it. I went out to see it a month later when I was doing car of the year testing for Motor Trend. You know, we had a good time, went through the car. So I don't have all the stress of owning this irreplaceable car, and it's in the best possible hands in the world. So I'm happy. He's happy. It's a fairy tale ending. How can I tell you? Man, that is fantastic. I tell you, there are so many people involved with the project. And I got to say, you know, from the engine side, um, you know, I was very fortunate. I, I was I was the one that had, you know, kind of the ideas and put the plan together. You know, it's like, Going over there and, and and lighting the fuse on the on the fire there, chucking a couple of logs on it, uh, but it was really so much voluntary work from some of the most amazing powertrain people uh, to be involved with this this engine development behind the scenes for so many years, uh, you know, up through working with Chris and, and getting on some of these really cool uh, you know vehicles and whatnot where the world could actually see some of this sort of underground stuff. So I know just on the engine side the people that put their, you know, blood, sweat, tears, their heart, their soul into it. And I know working with a lot of the vehicle guys, uh, so many people involved. Uh, I can't think of a better crew, a better team of folks that contributed to get all this happening. But I will say, Chris, that I kind of did some quick calculations. So I think the engine is about a quarter by volume or mass, which everyone look at. So I would be happy with taking maybe a quarter of the profits there. But since you invested the money, I'll cut that in half. So maybe an eighth. How about an eighth? Is that cool? Uh, an eighth of 25 mm. cents is how much? <laughs> All right, how about a beer the next time I get to catch you? We'll uh, we'll swap some more stories over a cold one. How's that? I'll, I'll buy you the beer. You deserve it. The team did a great There was a great powertrain team. Manfred Rumpel and the chassis team yeah. were outstanding. And then if you think about it, this was the first full complete car that was built in-house and by Ford. The whole body an electrical system was done in Valencia. The guys built the body, painted it themselves, did every single part on that car. It was it was a ton of people just doing something as a labor of love. And like I said, I write a book about it. I sold out all the first editions and, and so it's a dream come true. And now I go back and I'm going to go work on the other Cobra uh, that uh, Carol and I. Wait, you're leaving out a very, a very important part. What'd you buy your wife? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now you got me. 
Whew, I think you better go work on that one pretty quick. I definitely go work on that one pretty quick. I better quick. work on that some more before she hears this tape. <laughs> <laughs> but we went out. We, we had a fabulous time in the, in California, in Monterey, and we had a great dinner celebrated that night with all the new buyer and his team. And it was, we had a lot That's of great. It was great. It was great. And oh, by yeah. the way, she gets to decide what to do with the profits. So, okay. There you go. There you All go. right, man. What a what a great, what great a crazy story. story. Man. That's awesome. All right. Well, Chris, tell us uh, real quick, man. Um, you know, you're not really selling things like normally we have a lot of aftermarket guys out there, but you got your book. Tell us one more time the name of the book, and can people still get a copy of it? Uh, yeah. The, the name of the book's The Last Shelby Cobra by Chris Theodore, and you can get it on Amazon. Or if you want, they can drop me uh, an email, and I can send them a you know signed copy. Um, my email is cthedo one at comcast.net. Fantastic. And you're going to have to keep us posted on any of these other side projects you got because we'd love to talk more about any of those with you because you've got stories galore. Yeah. I got some when you're ready. In fact, I'll send you. Um, I'm finishing off Super Snake, which is really going to be cool. Uh, I have a dream of doing that Shelby version of the 4 GT. And I'm working on a neat engine I'll tell you about later, uh, Kevin, that's going to, it's got the potential to be uh, revolutionary. I'm heading out, I'm helping out a friend on this one, and it's pretty wild. Well, we hold my powder, right powder for a little bit till we make sure it does everything it to do. But uh, Well, you stay in touch, man, and thanks for being on the show with us. What a great ride. There you guys go. And don't forget about our show, Aaron Weekends on the Motor Trend Network. Check your local listings. Also available on Motor Trend On Demand, which is a great resource to find us. Thanks to our guest, Chris Theodore. That's an amazing story. Here's Kevin Bird. I am Willie B, producer, scoop, and executive producer, Bob Ecker. Yeah, and don't forget to check out our website, too, twoguysgarage.com. Share your thoughts with us. We're on social, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Guys Garage. Now, this Two Guys Garage podcast is copyright 2021, Britain Productions Incorporated, all rights reserved. Man, can you imagine Man. that? 2.4, 2.5, the last. Man, talk about history. He he owned the last Shelby Cobra, the last Carol Shelby Cobra. And now it's in one of his friends. Well, what's great is, um, you know, so many of us that got to work on it and contribute, uh, we get to see it still living right i don't care i don't care who you know eventually owns it and i'm so happy for chris to take the gamble uh and and give it back it's you know running driving life and then you know he, he turned a great little profit on that is so awesome because we get to see it live on and like he said i can't wait to under you know to know who the new owner is uh to just see it live its life all right you guys we'll catch you on the next two guys garage podcast Man, what a fun ride that was. We will see you on the next one. Take care, guys. Two Guys Garage Podcast is a production of Britain Productions. For more episodes, visit iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.